NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Daniel Estrin, glad to be joining you from Jerusalem. This hour, life in Ukraine and Russia after 10 months of war. We have the view from both countries. In the U.S., a shortage of children's pain relievers. We'll ask a pediatrician what she would tell parents of a kid with the flu. Plus, inflation, immigration, dinosaurs, and of course, Christmas and Hanukkah here in the Holy Land. We take you to a gourmet chef cooking for Christmas in the place famous for Jesus' birth. That's the beauty of Bethlehem. It's a little town. It's Sunday, December 25th. News is next. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. Pope Francis delivered his traditional Christmas Day message today, focusing at length on what he called the icy winds of war that continue to buffet humanity. NPR's Sylvia Pajoli reports from Rome. In his message, Pope Francis said the people of Ukraine are experiencing this Christmas in the dark and cold, in homes devastated by 10 months of war. And may the Lord enlighten the minds of those who have the power to silence the thunder of weapons, the Pope said, and put an immediate end to this senseless war. Turning to other parts of the world, Francis said, our time is experiencing a famine of peace, citing Syria, Lebanon, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Sahel, Yemen, Myanmar, Iran, and Haiti. And he condemned the use of food as a weapon, saying the war in Ukraine has put millions from Africa to Asia on the brink of famine. The Pope urged people to overcome the shallow glitter and give aid to the homeless, the poor, and migrants. Silvio Poggioli, NPR News, Rome. Three foreign aid organizations are suspending their work in Afghanistan following the Taliban order banning women from being employed at humanitarian agencies. Jan Egoland is with the uh, Norwegian Refugee Council. Taliban ban on female uh, colleagues means we cannot operate, we will not operate, we cannot do it without a female staff. The NRC, along with Save the Children and Care, have issued a joint statement saying they will fight the Taliban directive, saying it affects thousands of jobs in the midst of an enormous economic crisis. China's National Health Commission says it will no longer release daily figures for coronavirus cases. Such data has been published for the past two years. The commission didn't give a reason for the change. It said relevant coronavirus information would be published by the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention. But it did not say how frequently it would be updated. Here's the BBC's Ben Lowings. Analysts have cast doubt on recent figures showing a nationwide surge, but no deaths. Less testing is being done across China as restrictions have been eased. On Sunday, state media reported that intensive care units in Beijing hospitals were under pressure from a rise in admissions among elderly people. Unconfirmed reports say doctors are being brought in from provincial areas to help ease problems in the capital. Chinese officials expect another wave in January when large numbers of people travel for the Lunar New Year holiday. Power outages have dropped off following that huge winter storm that hit much of the country. Tens of thousands will remain without electricity on the East Coast this Christmas Day. Officials in Buffalo, New York, say there have been more than 50 rescues of people trapped in their vehicles amid blizzard conditions. This is NPR. Severe winter weather is taking its toll on movie box offices this weekend. 
NPR's Bob Bondello has details. With Christmas falling on a Sunday, which means light attendance on usually busy Saturday night, this weekend was always going to be a rough one for Hollywood, but with sub-zero temperatures and close to 80 multiplexes forced to close from Portland to Cincinnati to Buffalo, the box office outlook has gone from bad to, well, not too bad. Total North American revenues will still top $100 million for the weekend. Avatar The Way of Water will be closing in on a billion dollars worldwide by Monday. And the animated comedy Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, is getting its wish. Off to a good start with kids out of school. Bob Mandelo, NPR News. In Arizona, Judge has rejected Republican Carrie Lake's attempt to overturn her defeat in the Arizona governor's race, saying this weekend that there is no clear or convincing evidence of misconduct that would have changed the outcome of the November election that was won by Democrat Katie Hobbs. They claimed that problems with some ballot printers were the result of intentional misconduct. She says she will appeal the ruling. Police in Minnesota say five young people are under arrest in Friday night's fatal shooting at the Mall of America. The police chief in Bloomington says they will face murder charges. The suspects are all male. Three of them are 17 years old. The other two are 18. Police are still searching for a sixth suspect in the shooting that left a 19-year-old man dead. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm Sharon Brody. In sports this afternoon at the Garden, the Celtics face the Milwaukee Bucks. It is 17 degrees in Boston on this Christmas morning. Sunshine today, highs in the upper 20s. Tonight, mostly clear with a low about 19 degrees. Tomorrow, increasing clouds and Monday's temperatures in the low 30s. Tuesday should be sunny with highs reaching the mid 30s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Total Wine & More, where shoppers can explore over 8,000 wines, 2,500 beers, and 4,500 spirits. More at TotalWine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. Aisha Roscoe is off this Christmas morning. I'm Daniel Estrin, sitting in from Jerusalem. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has lasted for 10 months now. And as the new year approaches, we wanted to pause to reflect on what life feels like right now in each of those countries. Our correspondents have been on the ground in Russia and Ukraine chronicling the war this year. NPR's Charles Maines is with us from Moscow. Hi, Charles. Hi there, Daniel. Also with us is NPR's Kiev correspondent, Joanna Kakissis. Hi, Joanna. Hi, Daniel. Joanna, let's start with you. You were just in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Describe what is it like to walk the streets and visit people's homes after 10 months of war? So, Daniel, what's really struck me over the course of this year is how hard the Ukrainians have worked at keeping a sense of normalcy. The trains are running, people are working, restaurants, coffee shops, and bars are open. And even in newly liberated cities like Kherson in the south, where Russian troops are less than a mile away, uh, you see children playing in parks and moms shopping for Christmas presents. And they do this even though it can cost them their lives. Uh, Russian missiles hit a market full of shoppers on Christmas Eve, killing at least 10 people and injuring dozens more. Oh my gosh, that's horrible. But what about farther from the front lines? Is it as dangerous? 
Yes, to varying degrees it is. Russian missiles and Iranian-made drones are hitting urban areas everywhere, destroying power grids and plunging cities into darkness. In the capital, Kyiv, I met a family that has gotten used to walking up and down 17 flights of stairs because when the power goes out, so does the elevator. So the mom in the family is Ruslana Polkhled. She and her husband have four young children under the age of eight. Ruslana told me that her biggest concern is actually water. If the electricity is out too long, the water pump stops working. There was one day when we had light only for two hours. We just jumped and started washing ourselves, cooking, uh, washing dishes, uh, everything, everything. So, yeah. She hears her kids asking for light and water in their nightly prayers. Charles You're in Moscow. What does it feel like there right now, especially in this holiday season? New Year's is the big annual holiday here, but, you know, frankly, there's not a lot to celebrate at the moment. It's harder and harder for Russians to accept the government's insistence that everything is going according to plan in Ukraine as the conflict has dragged on. Just last week, President Vladimir Putin publicly dropped his chosen description of the conflict as a special military operation and for the first time called it what it is, a war. And he also suggested that Russia wanted an end to the war as soon as possible. But, of course, Ukraine has seen this time and again. It's usually meant on Moscow's terms. You mentioned the new year is an important holiday in Russia. How are Russians thinking about this coming year now? Well, you know, the Russians I talk to express a lot of trepidation about the year ahead. You know, a military victory, if it's possible, uh, they ask, comes at what price? Putin and his military said they wanted to call up thousands of more troops as the Kremlin continues to try and establish a hold over these Ukrainian lands that Russia claims to be next but doesn't actually control. Uh, There's also a lot of concern over the economy. Russia seemed to manage Western sanctions for most of this past year, but suddenly the ruble, the Russian currency, is losing value. Uh, This Western choke on Russian gas and oil exports is finally starting to kick in. One phrase I hear from younger Russians in particular uh, is that Putin has stolen their future, their dreams. You know, they just can't plan anything anymore. Wow. Joanna, when you speak to Ukrainians, Mm -hmm. where do they see their lives headed in the coming year? So every Ukrainian I've spoken to feels a great sense of uncertainty as well about how their lives will change in the year ahead. What they do feel certain about and very certain is that there will be victory at some point. And for them, victory means ending Russia's invasion and pushing Russian forces out of their country. Ukrainians are remarkably united around this idea that they are part of the West, embracing Western ideas of liberal democracy, and they are willing to suffer to realize this dream. I'd like to ask each of you to talk about just one person you met this year whose story sticks with you. Charles, you go first. The story that sticks with me is of a young man from St. Petersburg I met named Kirill Berezin, who received his draft mobilization notice this past fall. Uh, unlike many who fled the country amid mobilization, uh, Kirill said, okay, uh, you know, I'm willing to serve my country, but I don't want to fight. He proposed for alternative service as a conscientious objector, as he told me in an interview. So here Kirill says he understood that he just couldn't shoot a living human being and that under any circumstances, weapons, he felt, only brought destruction. Now, Kirill's story is still unfolding, but it highlights the way the state keeps reaching deeper into Russian society to meet its military objectives. You know, one day Kirill's going about his life. Uh, the next he's being threatened with jail time or being sent to the front lines uh, for refusing to fight. Joanna, how about you? Who do you still think about from all the Ukrainians you've met this year? 
I still think a lot about this elderly couple that I met uh, this spring in Moshchun, a town outside Kiev. Their names are Yuri Tostopalov and Natalia Tostopalova. Russian soldiers killed their neighbors and destroyed their town. The couple's house was in ruins, so they were living in the barn with their dogs. Their daughters live in St. Petersburg in Russia, and Yuri said calling them was, was so painful. He's saying that their daughters did not seem to acknowledge what Russian soldiers had done to Moshchun and that they lived in the alternate reality of Russian propaganda where the war Yuri and Natalia suffered simply didn't exist. This couple used to like Russians. They speak Russian, they studied in Russia, and they said they used to have friends in Russia. But now they believe there are no good Russians, and this belief has taken hold around Ukraine. Ukrainians are asking if Russians do actually oppose this war and all this pointless bloodshed and destruction, why aren't they out on the streets of Russia protesting against Vladimir Putin? NPR's Kyiv correspondent Joanna Kakissis and NPR's Moscow correspondent Charles Maines. Thank you both so much for being here and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas Daniel. Daniel. Washington remains at a standstill on immigration reform as migrants continue to make their way to the southern border. Meanwhile, inflation remains stubbornly high in the U.S. and there's a tight labor market. There is a notion that loosening restrictions on immigration is one way to help fight inflation. Daniel Costa is director of Immigration Law and Policy Research for the Economic Policy Institute, and he joins us now. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Can you first explain for us the connection between immigration and higher prices at the grocery store or the shopping mall? Well, the connection that most people have been talking about is the fact that there has been uh, fewer immigrants coming into the United States and therefore into our labor market. And uh, Chairman Powell of the Federal Reserve just the other day pointed to immigration as one of the reasons that uh, fewer people are entering the job market. Um, you know, Immigrants are a very important and essential part of the U.S. labor market. They make up more than 17% of the labor force. So there's a whole number of related issues, but, um, but that's sort of the main point. Talk about Title 42 in all this. We're hearing a lot about Title 42, which, of course, the Trump administration put in place during the pandemic. It allows the U.S. to turn back migrants for public health reasons. That is just one factor in reducing immigration to the U.S. What about increasing immigration? How do you see that happening? How much more immigration to the U.S. is needed to make any impact on inflation? The issue is that there's been a real slowdown in the number of immigrant workers coming into the U.S., both in terms of people with green cards or lawful permanent residents, as well as with temporary visas. However, a lot of that was caused by the slowdowns in processing and massive backlogs at federal immigration agencies, which was caused by the pandemic. Um, a lot of that is already getting back up to speed. It's not, not all across the board yet. There are still a lot of delays and backlogs. Uh, and a lot of that was caused by COVID, but also by mismanagement and anti-immigrant policies of the Trump administration. But there there is some good news. Uh, in fact, uh, some new census data was just released that shows that net migration is actually back up to pre-pandemic levels. So look, we're, we're behind in terms of immigration levels because of the pandemic, but the picture is certainly not as dire as it looked even just a short while ago. So Daniel, given all of this and given that inflation is better, but it's still high, and given that this whole immigration issue is partisan, what do you think is the most realistic 
economic path forward? Well, I mean, you know, the 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 issue uh, with inflation has been a lot more about supply chain and other related policy issues. You know, there's no denying that we're in a hot job market right now, but whether or not there's an actual labor shortage is a whole other issue that I think is up for debate. I'm a little skeptical uh, of that just because the labor force participation rate is not back to where it was uh, even before the pandemic. And that's sort of an indictment of employers who are not improving wages and working conditions enough to entice workers uh, to take the jobs on offer. And that's particularly troubling given the fact that corporations are seeing historically higher record profit margins, yet they're not willing to share some of that with workers in order to entice them for work. So I think whenever you hear the term a labor shortage and when you hear employers say, I can't find enough workers to hire, you have to add to the end of that sentence at the wage that I'm willing to pay. Theoretically, if tomorrow the U.S. ended Title 42, could that help the economy? I think... Ending Title 42 would be the right thing to do morally and legally, and the United States should fulfill its humanitarian obligations and let more people in and let them be processed um, the way uh, the way we're supposed to. However, it would not be a quick fix for the economy. And mostly that's because of the way uh, employment authorization works for asylum seekers. It realistically is going to take a year or more before they can get a work permit and start working. Daniel Costa of the Economic Policy Institute. Thank you so much. Thanks very much for having me. listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918. And coming up on Weekend Edition Sunday, it turns out that dinosaurs might not have roared in the manner people commonly imagine. That and much more ahead on Weekend Edition. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, presenting Medal of Honor, showcasing artistic interpretations of gold from the Renaissance and today. GardnerMuseum.org. It is 17 degrees in Boston on this Christmas morning. Sunshine today warming up into the upper 20s. Clear skies tonight with a low about 19 degrees. Increasing clouds tomorrow. Monday's highs in the low 30s. And on Tuesday, sunshine with highs in the mid-30s. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. Christmas travelers have been left stranded at airports and major roads were brought to a standstill by that massive winter storm. In Buffalo, New York, the airport is shut down until tomorrow morning and a driving ban has been put in place after authorities reported more than 50 rescues amid blizzard conditions. Many Christmas packages may not be making it to their final destinations in time. FedEx is warning that weather-related disruptions at FedEx hubs in Memphis and Indianapolis are delaying shipments in much of the country. And President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden will be making phone calls to members of the military on this Christmas Day. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. It's been a violent weekend in Paris. It opened with a gunman who had already served time for a racist attack against migrants firing on a Kurdish cultural center. Last night, members of the Kurdish community in Paris marched in response. Here's NPR's Eleanor Beardsley. On Friday morning in the bustling center of Paris, a retired French train worker pulled out a Colt 45 and fired into a Kurdish cultural center. Three people died and several were hospitalized. French Interior Minister Gérald Darmanin said the man clearly wanted to attack foreigners, but had acted alone and had probably not specifically targeted Kurds. But the large Kurdish community in Paris disagrees. Thousands of Kurds, anti-racist activists, and far-left politicians gathered on Christmas Eve to protest the violence and denounce the French government for not doing enough to protect its Kurdish community. Simon Soleimani is a Kurdish activist who has received political asylum in France. This is not a normal racist attack uh, against any refugees here. Turkey's army has been battling against Kurdish militants who have long wanted their own homeland, but French authorities so far see no link between Turkey and these murders. Still, the killings came just as the Kurds were preparing to commemorate the 10th anniversary of the unresolved murder of three other Kurdish activists in Paris. Late Saturday, the assailant was transferred from prison to a psychiatric institute when an examining doctor deemed he was not mentally stable. The Paris protests degenerated into violence, with cars overturned and shop windows smashed. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. Spare a thought, would you, for parents of small children this holiday season? There's a triple-demic in the U.S., the flu, RSV, and COVID, and it's wiping out over-the-counter children's medicines from drugstore shelves. Doctors say there is no need to panic. There are alternatives. We're joined this morning by Dr. Christina Johns, who specializes in pediatric emergency medicine in Annapolis, Maryland. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Johns, this is really shocking. I've been reading about shortages of children's Tylenol, children's Motrin. I mean, these are the basics. What is the reason for these shortages? You know, right now, because we are seeing such a surge of pediatric illnesses, and so uh, when we've got lots of sick kids, there's a lots of a need for things like over-the-counter pain and fever reducer medicines. So if I may ask your advice on behalf of our listeners, if your kid does get a fever and you can't get your hands on over-the-counter medicines, what should people do? So I have a couple of thoughts on it. I think, first of all, people are uh, very used to getting what they're used to. And I would encourage folks to know that there are generic formulations of ibuprofen and acetaminophen, which is commonly known as Tylenol. And so look for those. I think also get some guidance from your pediatrician. Uh, Those persons will know exactly what um, are the good options in your area and may have some insights in where to go to be able to find some medications. 
I think also chewables for older children. And of course, there's always a rectal suppository for very young babies for Tylenol. What about younger kids? Like if you have regular adult Tylenol, for example, uh, I was just looking through my medicine cabinet. Most of the pain relievers um, I have say safe for kids 12 and up. But what about younger kids? Can, can younger kids take those? You know, we really don't encourage folks trying to give either a half of a capsule or break up a tablet. Dosing is very intentional in pediatrics and it's based on weight. And so it's very difficult to get a precise dose if you do it that way. So that's generally something that we encourage folks not to do. What about uh, a popsicle or just taking a bath? I mean, you know, any home remedies that you might recommend? Yeah, you know, th these are really great options. I always say to folks when kids are over uh, about six to eight weeks of age, remember that by and large, you want to treat the child and not the number. And so if they are comfortable and feeling okay and acting well, then maybe it is time to lean into things like a lukewarm bath or a popsicle, other comfort measures like lots and lots of fluids. That can really help. Let me ask you a kind of a counterintuitive question. Would having a fever actually be helpful as long as it's not too extreme? You know, the fever is the body's way of uh, mounting an immune response. So I'm not afraid of fever per se because it's a signal to me that the body's doing what it needs to do to fight whatever infection is ongoing. I think it's important to note that some children, uh, one in five, in fact, um, we'll have something called febrile seizures, where when the rate of rise of temperature is very steep, then they will actually have a, a seizure. And this can be very dramatic, very frightening. It is typically a harmless phenomenon that goes away by the time children enter elementary school. At what point should a parent call a pediatrician? So my general feeling about it is that when a parent is concerned, Regardless of the reason, that's the time to check in with their child's pediatrician. That is what we are here for. Certainly for any newborn, any baby who is less than four to six weeks of age and they have a, a fever of over 100.4, that is a situation that must have a pediatrician call for guidance. And older than that, the things that I generally look for are is the child having difficulty breathing? Are they not being as responsive as usual? Are they so sleepy that they are hard to hard to talk to? Of course, whenever anyone has a fever, you don't feel 100%, but your child still should be responding to you and able to follow directions developmentally appropriately. You know, listen to the, your parental instinct. And, uh, and if something seems not right, make that call. Dr. Christina Johns, emergency pediatrician and also a spokesperson for the American Academy of Pediatrics. Thanks so much for your advice. Thanks for having me. On this Christmas Day, I'd like to take you to the little town of Bethlehem, where tradition says Jesus was born. And where Fadi Katan was born. Is yep. that true? Good morning. Uh... <laughs> Fadi Katan is a gourmet chef in the heart of Bethlehem. I went there a few days ago because I wanted to see the city at Christmas time through his eyes and his kitchen. We're in, um, in the middle of the old city in my great-great-grandparents' house. 
Give us a little um, aerial view here because we have an incredible view. So on your left you can see two bell towers. In Bethlehem, most Christian denominations are represented. How do you sleep? <laughs> Is this every hour? I am in a, in a tug of war with those sounds. Basically, I'm an insomniac. So I do wake up at 5.15, 5.30. The mosque and the churches go off at 5.30. He got back from London just the other night. He's opening a restaurant there next month dedicated to Palestinian cuisine with a modern twist. On the brunch menu, there's going to be a dish Bethlehemites eat only at Christmas time. And that's what we're making today. We walk out the back door right into the open air market to buy the ingredients. So now we're in the middle of the market. Yeah, your stairs lead right into the market. Yep. Everyone's greeting you, welcoming you back home. Yes. That's the beauty of Bethlehem. It's a little town. You know, the little town of Christmas is still a little town. I very often smile when I am in the U.S. Uh, and people talk about Bethlehem as if it was a myth. Bethlehem's a real city with real people. People who live in Bethlehem are Arabs who speak Arabic, who are one of the oldest Christian communities in the world, maybe the oldest. Hello. And that's our spice shop. Marhaba, hello. Hello. The wall is covered in spice jars. <laughs> Yogurt spice, kidra spice, falafel spice, butter spice. The one that's hidden here, this is called church incense, but it's actually frankincense. One of the gifts of the wise men to the baby Jesus. And this incense, so I'm obsessed with this now. And I'm trying to create a dish with this. He's thinking maybe a frankincense cocktail. Smell it. Wow. Actually, don't smell it. Taste it. Take that smell and imagine what it tastes like. It's the smell of pines. It's the smell of forest. I think it's a challenge I'll, I'll get to the bottom of soon. Today, we're making a kind of sweet porridge called Burbara, named after St. Barbara or Santa Barbara. Burbara. The story is that Barbara was the daughter of a pagan king. She converted to Christianity. Her dad wasn't happy about it. Basically sent his soldiers looking for her. She hid in a field of wheat, and the wheat grew to cover her. That's the story. I don't believe in myths, but I love the dish. So basically we slow cook. We get wheat pearls, raisins, dried apricots, candied anise seeds and fennel seeds, and head back to his kitchen. So it's wheat and sugar, and we're going to let them nicely cook. In 20 minutes, we'll add the uh, fennel and the anise ground spices, and then the dried fruits, half of them go in at the same time. It'll cook for another 20 minutes, and then we use the rest of the dried fruits and the candy to decorate little balls, which we'll then enjoy together. So now we wait for 20 minutes, and what do we do in the Arab world when we wait? We have coffee. We drink our coffee on the balcony. Past the bell towers is a newer feature of the landscape, a barrier in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. It's crazy to think that we are in a, most probably the holiest city in the world for Christians. There's a freaking wall at the entrance of the city, a barbed wire wall. So this wall that Israel built during the 2000s, during the Palestinian Intifada, a lot of yeah. attacks happening in, inside Israel, and they build a wall that around Bethlehem is an actual 
cement, tall cement wall. 12 meters high. Yes, there were a lot of Palestinian attacks, but the wall has never stopped attacks. A series of lethal Palestinian attacks on Israelis this year sparked Israeli military raids. This year has been the deadliest year for Palestinians in the West Bank in 17 years. What is changing? Nothing. It's worse and worse. He says he used to think Palestinians should have their own country, and Israelis should have their own too. But now he wants to live together in one country. What I'd love to see? You see this little garden? That I planted 20 years ago. It's a nice mess. There's oranges and olives and acacias and cherries and figs. Um, What I'd love to see is this in this part of the world. A beautiful mess of a garden. Yes. That mess which we are. If we look at who the Palestinians and the Israelis are, we are a remains of 100,000 cultures. We have been occupied by every single civilization around the Mediterranean and beyond. Maybe it's time we stop doing ghettos. As a Palestinian, he needs an Israeli permit to enter Jerusalem. Things were more fluid when he was a kid. He'd go from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, where his school shared a wall with a Hasidic Jewish school. One of my English teacher, actually, was a Canadian lady of Jewish faith, and we'd have jelly donuts. And actually, let's be honest, the jelly in them is pretty disgusting. <laughs> but it is a memory of childhood. And, you know, we all have these foods from childhood where we know they're disgusting, but we still like them and we find them endearing. So if you would have gotten jelly donuts for Hanukkah, I would have loved eating one. The Borbara is ready. It tastes like comfort food. It's warm and sweet. Kind of tastes like porridge. Mm. Fadi Katan says for him, Christmas is his memories of his grandmother, sharing her Christmas cakes with the community in Bethlehem. My grandmother wrote a nice little book of stories, and one of the stories was about Christmas and how she celebrated Christmas in her father's house. The book was called La Nansa, Lest We Forget. Sorry. If I celebrate Christmas, it's because of what she taught me. But I think today's the first time you're tasting Barbara. I'm going to celebrate joy with you. That's the power of food. The power of food is not getting people together. It's transmitting joy to people. Fadi Katan is a chef in Bethlehem. His restaurant, Akub, opens in London next month. listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Dinosaurs! You think you know what their roar sounded like. You've seen the Jurassic Park movies. But paleontologists have disputed that notion for years. They say prehistoric animals probably could not roar, but made all kinds of other sounds. Well, Richard Gray has been looking into this. He's a science journalist and editor at the website BBC Future. Hi, Richard. Hi there. How are you doing? I'm okay, although uh, I do have to ask you, are we about to disappoint a lot of five-year-olds out there? Yeah, I think we might be about to. I mean, actually, I started looking at this particular question because my nephew is a dinosaur obsessive. He's five years old and generally runs around the house with his hands clenched, his claws roaring at uh, anything that moves. Um, Yeah, that was me at five, too. 
Yeah, exactly. I think all of us. And it's strange that this deeply embedded idea that they did roar. But yeah, the research seems to suggest that they perhaps didn't roar. As we said, this research has been going on for decades. You've been speaking to a number of paleontologists who have been looking at this question. How has this research evolved over time? It's incredibly difficult to know how an animal that lived, you know, 66 to 100 million years ago would have sounded. Sounds do not fossilize. So what paleontologists have to do is look for things that will help them make assumptions about what noises these animals would have made. So as time has gone on, there's been improvements in technology in terms of our ability to look into some of these fossils. You know, the CT scanning is one of the uh, pieces of technology which has really kind of led to some huge developments in this. There was a team at the New Mexico uh, Museum of Natural History who used CT scans to look at the Parasilophorus skull and they saw these long tubes all the way through this bizarre crest that the animal had on the top of its head. And they then put that into uh, some computer simulations and were able to kind of get a relatively good estimate of what this animal would have sounded like if it blew air through this long tube, a bit like a wind instrument, really. Um, I kind of likened it to a little bit to a foghorn, but almost that throb that you get in your chest when you're in a nightclub or something and I don't know. I think to my ears, that feels even more terrifying. Imagine yourself in a jungle and you hear this, this kind of threatening low rumble kind of trembling through the foliage. What about a couple other examples of what dinosaurs, different kinds sounded like? So, I mean, obviously it depends on the size of the animal. There would have been a whole range of, of sounds. I think the Cretaceous period would have been quite strange to our ears, but it would have been a, a whole menagerie of different noises from kind of chirps and squeaks and perhaps even cooing to uh, to these really deep uh, rumbles that would have permeated through. Um, there's some interesting research which actually looks at perhaps these animals may not have even used that much sound to communicate anyway. There's, there's a theory out there that they perhaps use their tails to stay in contact with each other by just kind of, you know, brushing each other with them. They were a form of tactile communication rather than audible communication. So it may be that those really big dinosaurs just were much more touchy-feely. Touchy-feely dinosaurs, I like that. Richard Gray, a science journalist with BBC Future, talking about... The dinosaurs roar or lack thereof. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Weekend Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR during this holiday stretch. The news is here, along with stories, conversations, and reflections as we wrap up 2022. Ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday, skateboard icon Tony Hawk discusses the documentary Tony Hawk, until the wheels fall off. Also, you'll meet English singer-songwriter Tom O'Dell. It is 17 degrees in Boston on this Christmas morning. Sunshine today, highs in the upper 20s. This is WBUR. The holidays are the time for those recipes, you know, the tried and true ones passed down through generations. And they can be intimidating. It probably sounds complicated, but it isn't that bad. And it's something that you feel proud of once you've finished. 
I'm Andrew Limbaugh. We'll walk you through two classic recipes from our very own team on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fairbank & Perry Goldsmiths in Concord. Owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. And Avangrid, a clean energy company committed to accelerating Massachusetts climate goals by investing in offshore wind and hydroelectric energy designed to power 2 million homes every day and help reduce carbon emissions by 7 million tons, believing that acting on on climate change can't wait. Next time on the New Yorker Radio Hour, poet Tracy K. Smith talks with Kevin Young about the hard life of a United States poet laureate. Plus, the guitarist of The Roots reinterprets some holiday classics in guitar hero fashion. That's the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That's Sunday night at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bed Bath & Beyond with storage products, too. Featuring a curated selection of brands like Dyson, KitchenAid, and Ugg. More at bedbathandbeyond.com. And from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. Few athletes can say their names are synonymous with greatness. Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, Serena Williams... And when it comes to skateboarding, Tony Hawk. The Birdman, as he's known to millions, has had a remarkably long and celebrated career, and he is not giving up just yet. As 2022 draws to a close, we are revisiting conversations we loved from the last year. Aisha Roscoe spoke to Tony Hawk last April about the HBO documentary, Tony Hawk, Until the Wheels Fall Off. It chronicles his life and career, beginning with the first time he got on a skateboard. My brother and his friend were in the alleyway skating and his old board was just lying there. And I said, oh, can I try this? And I remember yelling, how do I stop? How do I stop? And then I ran into the fence. I got a couple splinters in my fingers. And then a few of my friends started skating as a hobby and we started building ramps and stuff. And that's when I got more serious about it. Let's talk about the Bones Brigade, because even though when you first started skating, you didn't think of it as going to be this big thing, but there was this group of some of the most talented young skaters in the 80s, and you became a part of it. Like, how did it feel to be a part of the Bones Brigade at such a young age? It was scary because they were considered the most elite team. And Mm. so when I got put on the brigade, it was more what am I doing here? I don't belong here. This is too much. And then I just suddenly had to step up my skating, really just to validate the fact that they wanted me on the team. And before long, we were traveling the world and doing exhibitions and doing iconic skate videos. And I was so honored. It was it was the right place, right time at that point. I, I have to say, looking at those videos, y'all look really cool. Y'all had really cool hair. <laughs> it was like <laughs> very 80s. Like, but it looked yeah. like y'all look like group I would want to be a part of, right? You know, skating, <laughs> even though it was it got somewhat popular in the 80s, it was still very underground counterculture and 
That was the goal. We were already set apart because we skated. We might as well look the part too, because we're not trying to fit in anywhere. Well, in the 80s, you were competing around the country and internationally, and then you started winning consistently. But then you found yourself at a point where you felt empty and kind of missing something. And so let's let's play a little clip. And we hear from a skater and friend of yours, Stacy Peralta, and then you. People calling him a clown skater because of the tricks he does. People saying, you don't deserve to be doing this. Christian should be winning. And at the same time, achieving his dream. He achieved his dream. And he got up there and he realized how lonely it is. I felt like I was losing myself, losing my passion. None of the, the money or fame or success was worth that. I think some people might have a hard time understanding, like, okay, if you're winning, why did you feel empty at that point? Because I, I love skating for what it provided me in terms of my feelings and my mental health and my adrenaline. And when I would go to a competition, I was in a mode that was much more conservative. It was, it was less fun. It was more like, you have to hit this mark. You have to do these tricks. And then guess what? There's another one next weekend. And that became this formula that was sucking the fun out of skateboarding for me because I love the spontaneous aspects of skating. But the only way to have success in skateboarding at that time was to compete. So I played the game, but at some point it burned me out. When you came back to it, it was all about not being so worried about winning. You have to be willing to lose. Absolutely. And it was, it was liberating. Yeah. It, it, it allowed me to, to enjoy skating and compete. And that mm -hmm. was the balance I needed at that time in my life. But even though you were willing to lose, you still won a lot even after that. <laughs> right? I, I did, yeah. I mean, I, and, and I, think, I think because suddenly I was released of this tension. And, and there was a point where you got the fame and the money and all of that, but still had to go through this point of reflection and determining like the man that you wanted to be. And you decided to put that discipline that you put into skateboarding into your life. Yeah, and that, that seems easy to say, but it took a lot of work because I was always easily distracted with the trappings of fame. And at some point sort of fell into that. And so to, to pull back from that and to put all of this discipline and energy into being a present father and husband was something that I had to work on. But when I did figure it out, life was just so much more enjoyable. I mean, now skating is not my distraction and my escape. Now it's just, it's my enjoyment. For me, it's just like, that's my relaxation. That's where I feel in control. And I'm goofing around and sometimes it goes bad and I break my leg. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not as great when you break your leg. <laughs> no. But, you know, and I've never talked to someone who is the greatest at their sport. So since I have you, and you are the greatest <laughs> at oh, skateboarding, is it, is it the determination and drive, or is there something else? The idea that I, it's not that I want to get hurt, and it's not that I'm trying, to, I'm trying to prove that I'm tough, but I don't mind getting hurt along the way for the sake of progression. Mm. And if I take a hard fall and I'm still able to get up, I'm gonna get up and I'm gonna try it again. Mm. One of my earliest falls was I fell from the top of a pool. I got a concussion. I knocked my teeth out. Someone found me laying in the bowl. I was 11. Um, oh my gosh. And when I woke up, 
my first thought was, well, I'm not going to do that trick in that way again. <laughs> that is that is a difference. Yeah. That is that is a difference. And you're not retired from skating, to be clear, but you have been retiring certain tricks in the last few years, including that 900, which is uh, two and a half rotations in the air. Last year, you did one last Ollie 540. What does it mean for you to retire these tricks? And, and why do that? Why retire them? Because I, I can still do them, and I know I won't be able to do them for much longer. And why not have some finality to that? I feel like very few mm-hmm. athletes or performers get the chance to realize that they're starting to get too old and maybe that this might be the last time. Yeah. So why not just do one for the last time while I still got the skill set and to share it, to share that process? Because it was really cathartic. It was fun for me. I, I, I'm thankful to have done that. And I hope my leg gets better so I could do a couple more. How did you hurt your leg at, at this point? Was it skateboarding? I was or? skateboarding, yeah. It was three weeks ago. I was skating my ramp, doing a trick that I've done many, many times. And I didn't have the usual amount of speed. I thought I could compensate for that like I used to when I was younger, and I couldn't. So in all that force and chaos, my femur broke. Speaking of these injuries, you're 53 now. Skateboarding is not a gentle sport. Do you plan to keep on going? I don't make ultimatums. I would love to get my leg in working order and see if I can get back to some version of the skill set I had before I got hurt. And if I reach even half of that at this point, I'll be happy. That was Tony Hawk talking with Aisha Roscoe last April about the HBO documentary, Tony Hawk, Until the Wheels Fall Off. Tis the season for tamales. You can eat them any time of year, but these Mexican delicacies are particularly popular around the holidays. Later today on All Things Considered, a cooking lesson featuring one family's centuries-old recipe. Listen this afternoon by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. Tom O'Dell has found freedom. I think today is the best day of my life. Gonna ride a bicycle ride around the This British musician began releasing his music in 2012, and he quickly rose to success. He's garnered critical acclaim, he's received top music industry awards, and now Tom O'Dell has tried something new. He's freed himself from working with a major label and has produced a studio album all on his own. It's called Best Day of My Life. Tom O'Dell joins us now from his studio in London. Hi, Tom. Hello. Thanks for having me on. So talk about this title track, Best Day of My Life. Were you actually having the best day of your life (laughs) making this album or singing this song? Because I have to say, you sound pretty melancholy. (laughs) Um, Well, interestingly, the first idea for the song, the main hook was, I think today is the worst day of my life. These times are hard to live in. There appears to be so much um, division and so much judgment, so much pain and suffering that, that people are going through and also so much inequality. But for some reason, it seemed to have more power, more sadness with the phrase, I think today is the best day of my life. You begin to realize that perhaps this isn't the person's best day of my life. And perhaps there's a sort of um, 
desperation to that phrase. In your track, Sunrise, we only hear you playing piano, and that's it. And most of this album is just your voice and your piano. Why did you make that choice? I've played the piano since I was six or seven years old. I'm 32 now, quite a long time. Um, I've made four albums before this one, and the piano has always played a big part of it. I actually read a book uh, just before the album, I started making the album by Jenny O'Dell, it's called How To Do Nothing. It made me reflect on my own role in the attention economy and everyone is competing for our attention. <laughs> what that's done to art and to uh, you know music is that everyone's trying to cram the most amount of information in the shortest possible time. So I wanted to create songs and, and an album of which created space rather than filling people's space, where our thoughts can move around with more freedom and actually they become healthier thoughts because of that. I walk back home, you're all alone The ivy's grown this Christmas Eve let me ask you about your song, The Blood We Bleed. Sounds like it's a song about a couple, it's Christmas Eve, and there's a lyric, it's your blood I'm going to bleed. What is this song about? This song is about our tendency to hurt those who we love the most. When we hurt someone we love, we probably hurt ourselves even more. There's a sort of masochism to it. You know how to hurt me, but every time you hurt me, know that it will be a bit of you that I also bleed. For me, I have become my father's son. You always want to me to be. I treat you tough. We call it. We get taught how to love by those who love us first. And um, it's not just parents, but I think your, your entire subjective experience, how to love someone, how to hate someone, how to, um, all, all, all of these experiences come to define us. This is a song that takes place a couple on Christmas Eve, arguing. Um, we are airing this conversation on Christmas Day. The Blood We Bleed, do you consider that a Christmas song? No. I mean, it's not really about Christmas. It's maybe just the setting, you know? It's when we return home. What kind of Christmas music do you like hearing at this time of year? Well, oh my God, there's so many good Christmas songs. Fairy Tale of New York is probably up there, rocking around the Christmas tree as well, because that's the one in, in Home Alone. He's like got all the silhouettes. Macaulay Culkin and he's, he's pretending that he's having a house party and you hear Christmas songs. I think mostly they take me back to my childhood. It's impossible to not feel nostalgic. I 
I have to ask you about an old song of yours that has found new life. Another Love, uh, you released it back in 2012. It's been streamed on Spotify more than a billion times. Um, and it, this year it's become an anthem in protest videos against the war in Ukraine. It's become an anthem for women protesting in Iran. How did all that happen? I can't say for sure, but I feel proud that I conceived the song and I'm pr I feel proud that I wrote it and the honesty I managed to get down in that song is resonating with people for all sorts of different reasons and it was powerful, incredibly inspiring. Your small role in this, I mean, that's the internet, your, your song spread and I mean, talk about attention economy, this, is, this song has gotten so much attention um, in a good way and I guess, I wonder is this ultimately what you hope your music can do? As an artist, you know, my biggest hope is that ultimately the art connects with people, of course, but the most powerful thing I can do is to let go of, of anything I create and accept and trust in the sort of wisdom of the world and of uncertainty as to what that may be used for or may not be used for, you know. It's at moments like these that the internet feels like a real force for good and something that can unite us rather than divide us. I feel connected to the world. I don't want to say goodbye It's been so long since I Stayed up late at night With someone that I love I'm gonna be smiling all the way back home Singer-songwriter Tom O'Dell has just released a new album, Best Day of My Life. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Daniel. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. Happy holidays, everyone. I'm Daniel Estrin. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. This is NPR. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's coming up on 10 o'clock as Weekend Edition Sunday continues. It's 17 degrees in Boston on this Christmas morning. Sunshine today with highs in the upper 20s. Low about 19 degrees overnight. And then for your Monday, increasing clouds and highs in the low 30s. On Tuesday, sunshine, highs in the mid-30s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries, free Sundays, and new museums at night events. HarvardArtMuseums.org. I'm Rupa Shanoi, WBUR's Morning Edition host. You know, in a city like Boston that's changing so fast, experience matters. Reporters Martha Biebinger, Anthony Brooks, and the entire WBUR newsroom are out in the community to take you behind the headlines so you can start your day in the know. Join me weekdays for Morning Edition starting at 5 a.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Let's make mornings better.
I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Daniel Estrin, joining you this Christmas morning from Jerusalem. This hour, President Biden's got some deciding to do, as we'll hear from NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid. We'll look back at this chaotic year in social media and what's ahead, as well as the rise of the far right in Israel. And Hanukkah with a hip-hop artist who knows all the cool spots. I can get you a beer in, in any part of Jerusalem. Muslim, ultra-orthodox, whatever. I know where the bad boys hang. Plus a sportscaster turned cranky weatherman goes viral. It's Sunday, December 25th. All that and more after this newscast. Live from NPR News, I'm I'm Giles Snyder. Parts of North America still in the grip of winter storms that left behind power outages and uh, temperatures plummeting. Dan Karpinchuk reports the storms have caused travel chaos across the United States and Canada. In some areas, emergency response crews have not been able to reach people. Road travel is treacherous. Four people died in a multiple car pileup on the Ohio Turnpike. Hundreds of cars have slid off roads and highways. And a passenger bus crash in British Columbia has sent more than 50 people to hospitals on Christmas Eve. Train travel was also disrupted with more than 20 via rail passenger trains cancelled in Ontario. Thousands of flights have been cancelled in both the U.S. and Canada, leaving holiday travellers stranded on Christmas Day. For NPR News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk in Toronto. In Buffalo, New York, the airport is shut down until tomorrow morning and a driving ban has been put in place after authorities reported more than 50 rescues amid blizzard conditions. A natural gas export facility in Texas says it won't be able to restart production until the second half of January. NPR's Jeff Brady reports the announcement comes as global demand for gas is high amid the war in Ukraine. The Freeport Liquefied Natural Gas, or LNG, export facility stopped production after a pipeline rupture and explosion last summer. The company expected to be back to full capacity by now. In a statement, Freeport LNG says reconstruction is mostly finished, but federal regulators still have questions, and it'll take time to resolve those before production resumes. Restarting such a large facility is a long process, and it won't begin for at least a few more weeks. The facility accounts for about a fifth of U.S. gas exports. It had been supplying countries cut off from Russian gas because of that country's invasion of Ukraine. Jeff Brady, NPR News. Pope Francis used his Christmas message to call for an immediate end to the war in Ukraine and other global conflicts. He delivered his traditional to the city and the world blessing hours after air raid sirens went off across Ukraine today. In the first week of the war, 16-year-old Andriy Prokasa was given an urgent job. His village outside Kiev had been surrounded by Russian forces, so he flew his commercial drone to see where Russian military vehicles were moving. NPR's Tim Mack reports on his life now. The 16-year-old spoke proudly about his role in the chaotic first days of the full-scale Russian invasion. He managed to fly a drone to spot Russian troop movements and relay them to the Ukrainian military. 
envisioning life after the war, he says he wants to take part in drone racing competitions. But as for this Christmas, he said he wanted a Ukrainian victory. As to name a physical gift, he said he really wanted new propeller blades for his drone. His father assured us that he would get it. Tim Mack, NPR News, Kiev. This is NPR. Three major foreign aid organizations are suspending their work in Afghanistan following the Taliban order banning women from being employed at humanitarian agencies. They include the Norwegian Refugee Council, CARE, and Save the Children. The three aid agencies say they can't do their work without their female staff. A prosecutor in Paris says uh, the 69-year-old suspect in the fatal shootings of three Kurdish people has expressed his hatred of foreigners. The prosecutor issued a statement today. The suspect has said his hatred stems from a burglary at his home in 2016 and that it's become pathological. He remains in a psychiatric unit. The shootings led to protests in Paris yesterday. Britain's royals have gathered at the monarch's country estate for their first Christmas with a new head of the family, King Charles. Vicki Barker reports from London. This is the first time the royals have celebrated Christmas at Sandringham since the pandemic and the first time since Charles became king. In addition to Prince William, wife, Kate, and their children, all of Charles's siblings and their families are in attendance, including Prince Andrew's housemate and ex-wife, Sarah Ferguson, long banned from such gatherings over the schedule that attended the breakdown of that marriage. Andrew himself was expected to keep a low profile because of the now-settled civil sex assault case that forced him to withdraw from public duties. As Prince and Princess of Wales, William and Kate hosted a carol service in Westminster Abbey dedicated to the late Queen Elizabeth, which was broadcast Saturday night. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. In sports at the Garden this afternoon, the Celtics take on the Milwaukee Bucks. It is 18 degrees in Boston on this Christmas morning. Sunshine today. Highs in the upper 20s. Overnight lows dropping to about 19 degrees. Then increasing clouds tomorrow with Monday's highs in the low 30s. Tuesday, you can expect sunshine and highs in the mid 30s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. Aisha Roscoe is off for Christmas. I'm Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. Yes, even after 2,000 years, Christmas still has the power to lift us up, to bring us together, to change lives, to change the world. The Christmas story is at the heart of the Christmas Christian faith. But the messages of hope, love, peace, and joy, they're also universal. That is President Biden from his Christmas address, one in which he stressed unity and universality. And that is where we will start with NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid. Good morning, Asma. Good morning. Politico called it Biden's Merry Christmas yesterday, and he did cap the holiday with some last-minute accomplishments. Walk us through some of those, uh, like the spending Mm -hmm. bill that passed just under the wire. 
Yeah, well, that big uh, spending bill was $1.7 trillion, and Congress did indeed pass it just ahead of Christmas Eve to keep the government funded. You know, it includes some of the president's priorities, such as uh, about $45 billion to continue aiding Ukraine. Uh, I will say, though, Daniel, you know, there is no doubt that these last two years included some major laws that were passed purely along party lines, uh, only because Democrats wanted to do them, things like uh, the big investments in climate and health care, known as the inflation. Reduction Act. But there are other key pieces of legislation, um, like investments in infrastructure and semiconductor manufacturing, that passed because Republicans and Democrats decided to work together. And, you know, this is something that the White House has been touting. It is something that they say is central to why Joe Biden ran for president, this vision of bipartisanship. Uh, I will say, though, of course, the reality is Republicans are going to take control of the House in January, and it will likely be very difficult to pass any new legislation. Well, to that point, even though the president keeps stressing unity, uh, even as recently as his Christmas speech this past Thursday, what happens when there is divided government? Well, Republicans in the House have already been telegraphing their plans to investigate this White House on, on frankly, everything from the origins of COVID-19 to the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, some in the GOP have also been eager to investigate the president's son, Hunter, Hunter Biden, for his business dealings. Um, you know, I think that this is something that Republicans in the House are, are sort of eager to do at this point in time, given the way that they felt that they were put under scrutiny by Democrats these past two years. Um, that being said, some of the experts that I've spoken with warn that there's a risk in this strategy. There's a danger in perhaps over-interpreting the results of the midterms um, to see this, you know, potentially backfire in two years during a general election. Hmm. Now, it's not just a Republican House that looms for Biden. We are expecting some movement on Biden's student loan forgiveness and Title 42, the Trump-era mm -hmm. policy that allows the U.S. to reject asylum seekers on public health grounds. Yeah, so first on student loans, uh, that is all in limbo. It will go to the Supreme Court, who's going to hear arguments on the issue in late February. Um, then on Title 42, which, you know, I think we should explain to listeners, is this policy that has allowed border agents to essentially more quickly turn migrants away. Uh, it was supposed to expire this past week, but a group of Republican governors wanted to keep it in place. Uh, long story short, at the 11th hour, the Supreme Court intervened and temporarily kept the rule in place. At this point in time, it is unclear to me how long this kind of legal limbo will remain. But the expectation, uh, even from some Democratic politicians, is that there could be a surge at the border and that the government just frankly is not equipped to deal with that. And really, they need, you know, complete immigration reform at this point. We started with Joe Biden's Christmas. Let's end on it. Uh, mm -hmm. He says he's got some deciding to do this Christmas, right? That's right. Um, he has said that he intends to run for president again, but he added that this is ultimately a family decision. He intends to discuss this with his family, likely over the holidays. And so I expect we will hear some news on that front in the new year. Keeping us on our toes, that's Asma Khalid, NPR White House correspondent and co-host of the NPR Politics Podcast. Thanks, Asma. Thank you. Here in Jerusalem, in a matter of days, Israel will swear in the most right-wing government in its history. Its members will pose for the traditional photo. Benjamin Netanyahu will sit in the front as the returning prime minister. Gathered around him will be some of Israel's most far-right figures. An activist who was convicted of inciting anti-Arab racism and who wielded a gun in confrontations with Palestinians. He'll be overseeing the national police 
There will be a West Bank settler leader who wants to block Palestinians from having their own state alongside Israel, what's called the two-state solution. And there will be ultra-religious politicians who want to promote Orthodox Judaism in public life. Netanyahu says he'll be the one in charge and will promote responsible policies. Critics are mapping out what Israel might look like. So I think the thing that, that is most we're most worried about is the potential for violence. I spoke to Noah Satat, who directs the Association for Civil Rights in Israel. She recalls the Gaza War in May of last year, when there were street riots inside Israel between Jewish and Arab citizens. And she says she worries about something like that happening again, but this time with a far-right police minister. We're worried about violent cycles that will be longer and more extreme than in the past. We are worried that the police brutality around these violent cycles will be unprecedented. She worries the new government will discriminate against Palestinian Arab citizens of Israel, like disqualifying Arab parties from running for office. They could draft a law banning the Palestinian flag, and that could be law. She's concerned about liberalism in Israel. Ultra-Orthodox Jewish members of the new government want the power to separate women from men at public events and to allow business owners to refuse service to same-sex couples. And she's concerned about the government's plans for the Supreme Court. In the past, the court has struck down laws that discriminate against Palestinians and migrants. The new government wants lawmakers to have the final say. The stripping away of the power of the Supreme Court would be devastating in the long term in terms of uh, our struggle for human and civil rights. So how can we understand the rise of Jewish far-right ultranationalism in Israel? I asked Tamar Herman. She studies public opinion at the Israel Democracy Institute. She says Israel has been moving rightward for about a decade now. Religious Jewish Israelis overwhelmingly define themselves as right-wing. Orthodox families have high birth rates, and their kids tend to share their politics. But this year, researcher Tamar Herman saw a shift. Many young Israelis who are not religious voted for the far right. And a third of Israel's soldiers voted for the far right. The far right wants to loosen the rules on when soldiers patrolling Palestinians can shoot. The message of the radical right was clear-cut. It was simple. It had to do with the status of the Israeli Arab citizens. That has gotten much more complicated since May 2021, when we had these uh, violent clashes in the mixed towns and cities. These are the common assessments. The very slim majority of the Jewish Israelis define themselves either as secular or following basic Jewish tradition, but not religious. What do they think about this incoming government where ministers are going to be promoting Orthodox Judaism in public life? We've even heard one who says he wants to shut down soccer games on the Sabbath. We've heard about uh, efforts to block schools from teaching progressive curriculum like LGBTQ topics. Are most Jewish Israelis on board with that? This uh, kind of development was not expected because they didn't expect the radical right to have such leverage to put pressure on Netanyahu actually caught them by surprise. Her latest polls show most secular Israelis who voted for Netanyahu don't support these new initiatives, which the far right has demanded in exchange for joining Netanyahu's government. But from their point of view, it's better than the outgoing liberal government, which included an Arab political party, that they couldn't stomach in a country that defines itself as Jewish and democratic. 
the relations between Jews and Arabs in Israel are now much worse than they used to be. Actually, we see a process of radicalization on both the Arab side and the Jewish side, not only on the right. This is something that we should keep in mind. Of course, the right is much more outspoken about it, but the average Israeli, the Jewish Israeli citizen is now much more doubtful about the ability to have a benevolent cooperation with uh, the Arab minority and some of the Arabs and the Arab leaders are actually saying we don't want to take part in the political game. What about the lives of Palestinians in the Israeli-occupied West Bank? This is the big issue for the international community, Israel's occupation, its overarching control of the lives of Palestinians. What are Israelis thinking about that today? They're not thinking about it. As surprising as it may sound to people from the outside, the occupation was not on the table during the last five election campaigns. The status quo is perceived as something that Israel can live with, and actually this is perceived as such on the center and on the right, and also uh, on certain parts of the left, because they don't see a partner on the other side, and there is no solution put on the table. No one put any real pressure on Israel in this regard for years now. Neither Europe, no Washington, certainly not other players in the international community. So there is a big difference between what the international community is saying and what it is doing on the level of actions from the economic point of view, commercial point of view, security point of view, everyone is cooperating with Israel. Tamar Herman, Senior Fellow at the Israel Democracy Institute. Tamar, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 1018 and ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday, looking back at 2022, a tumultuous year in social media. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. And Fairbank & Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, helping transform your outdated, unused jewelry into fresh and wearable pieces for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. Stay informed about a full range of developments in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app whenever, wherever. It is 19 degrees in Boston on this Christmas morning. Sunshine today. Highs in the upper 20s. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. 
Power outages have dropped sharply following the storm that brought snow, ice, howling winds, and plunging temperatures to much of the country. But tens of thousands remain without electricity on the East Coast this Christmas Day. Most of the outages range from Virginia to Maine. An Arizona judge has rejected Republican Carrie Lake's attempt to overturn her defeat in the Arizona governor's race, saying this weekend that there is no clear or convincing evidence of misconduct that would have changed the outcome of the election. Lake says she will appeal the ruling. And police in Minnesota say five young people are under arrest in Friday night's fatal shooting at the Mall of America. The police chief in Bloomington says they will face murder charges. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more and support at ajws.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. There has been a lot of upheaval in the social media industry in 2022. Beyond the chaos at Twitter under Elon Musk, Facebook is trying to pivot to the metaverse, and economic pressures are squeezing Silicon Valley. So let's talk about all this with NPR's Shannon Bond. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Daniel. Shannon, hit rewind for us. What were the big moments of this past year? Yeah, I think a lot of these big social networks started off the year, you know, attempting these kind of fresh starts. You know, Facebook spent very heavily betting on this immersive virtual metaverse that it's trying to to create. At Twitter, there was already a new CEO in place even before Elon Musk made this surprise bid for the company. But, you know, almost right away, things got off track. There were ad revenue shortfalls across the sector. Facebook lost users for the first time. You know, companies were laying off thousands of workers. And many social media companies are feeling this pressure from TikTok, the very popular Chinese-owned short video app that's really redefining social media. Instead of connecting with friends, it's all about seeing the most engaging videos that anybody on the platform has posted. Hmm. So if TikTok is redefining social media, how are American social media companies responding? Well, platforms like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, they are scrambling to copy some of these features on TikTok. You know, you're seeing more short videos in your feed. You might be seeing more videos recommended from people you don't know, you don't follow. And that's a big change. I spoke with Michael Samen, who's an app developer who's worked at Facebook, Google, and Twitter. I think really the money makers in social media and and really the, the profit for these companies is not anymore in the business of like friend sharing. He says these apps are becoming more like TV networks, right? There's a tiny fraction of creators who are making almost all the content. Yeah, I have noticed this on my own Facebook and Instagram. You know, suddenly these videos pop up from people I do not follow. Um, I guess at first I was annoyed by it. And now I I have to admit, I find myself clicking on these mindlessly. And there they are. What do people feel about these changes? 
it's pushing a lot of users to look for alternative ways to, you know, keep up with those friends that they might not be seeing as many posts from, you know. So they're turning to messaging services like WhatsApp and Discord, apps like Be Real, where users post one unedited photo every day that can't be liked or shared. And we've also seen this disillusionment with the le legacy social sites um, has inspired this new crop of apps by and for conservatives, hmm. right? They feel their views are muzzled by Silicon Valley. And this year we saw that partisan fracturing extend to Twitter, right? right. Elon Musk is courting right-wing users. He's alienating advertisers, employees, and regulators. Well, there has been a lot of focus in recent years on, on the harms of social media. So what's the effect of all these new changes in the social media landscape? Well, I think this fragmentation of the public conversation is making life more complicated, right? Both for threat actors who are trying to spread propaganda and amplify polarization across platforms, and for people trying to investigate those threat actors, whether they're journalists or researchers or even the companies themselves. So what are you looking for in the new year? Well, you know, I think there's going to be even more fragmentation. Twitter is in turmoil. People are looking for apps to replace it. And Elon Musk has said he'll step down as CEO, though we don't have any sense of the timing there. You know, TikTok is under national security scrutiny and facing bans from state and the federal government. But even more than that, I think there's this broader evolution in how people think about sharing. They're sort of turning to these more private places. And it suggests to me that the next era of social media will be defined not by one big mega company where you're sharing to billions of people, but by making connections and sharing content scattered across many different apps. Hmm. NPR's Shannon Bond, thank you. Thank you. One winter weather watcher was very cold and very cranky Thursday morning. What better time to ask the sports guy to come in about five hours earlier than he would normally wake up, go stand out in the wind and the snow and the cold and tell other people not to do the same. I didn't even realize that there was a 3.30 also in the morning uh, until today. <laughs> That's KWWL reporter Mark Woodley reporting from Waterloo, Iowa. I did 14 live hits over the course of two and a half hours. So I'd be outside for six minutes and I'd be inside for 10 minutes. And I didn't really completely thaw out in that 10 minutes because when it's that cold out, you know, it takes some time to warm up. Woodley posted some of his best winter storm chase observations to Twitter. The good news is that I can still feel my face right now. The bad news is I kind of wish I couldn't. And he promptly went viral. The reaction has been insane. And the thing about, I love about it, 90, 95% has been positive. I didn't think this storm was a joke and I want to make sure people know that. But, you know, I also thought, you know, if I bring some of my personality to it, maybe people will pay attention more. And by the end of his 14 live hits, you could sense the relief. Live in Waterloo for the last time this morning. Thankfully, I'm Mark Woodley, News 7 KWWL. And despite the millions and millions of clicks, don't expect him back there anytime soon. Maybe sometime in life we'll make it big for something. And crotchety old complaining weather reporter was never on that list. But I am going back to sports reporting. There were a lot of great new books this year. Too many to keep track of. But guess what? Our contributors and staff have got you covered. NPR's Books We Love has more than 400 reading recommendations for you. Right now, here are just a few. Hello, I'm Jason DeRose, the Western Bureau Chief for NPR News. I'm recommending the novel Less is Lost by Andrew Sean Greer. 
It's the follow-up to the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel Less from a few years ago. Arthur Less's losses are legion. His former lover, his current partner, his house, his self-confidence. So he takes to the road in a rented van with a borrowed pug to make some money and figure out if he still loves who and what he thinks he loves. Les is accused of being a bad gay for not taking up every single cutting-edge queer issue in his writing. And he wonders if he really might be guilty as charged. There's a passage about Les joining a gym that turned out to be a sex dungeon that is so funny it had me laughing out loud. Les is a hapless Walloon, a possibly European man of letters and privilege who stumbles through mounting humiliations out of impending tragedies and into surprising success. Yet his inability to recognize his luck as luck is why we love Les more and more. Hi, it's NPR national correspondent Debbie Elliott. The novel I could not put down this year was The Confessions of Matthew Strong by Usman Power Green. This novel is a terrifying page turner. The protagonist is a philosophy professor, Allie Douglas. She's kidnapped by a white supremacist while she's back home in Alabama for her grandmother's funeral. And she discovers that this man has been abducting black girls and women as part of some delusional plot to turn society back to the antebellum South. And he has the help of local law enforcement officers and some powerful state politicians. The racial violence in the story is raw and unsettling, but Power Green, I think, is trying to scare us into taking radical ideology seriously. I'm Andrew Limbong, host of NPR's Book of the Day podcast and culture reporter at NPR. This year, I love Jonathan Escoffrey's If I Survive You. It's a short story collection that follows one Jamaican-American family in Miami that endures a decent amount of tragedy and loss. You know, they really go through it. And the story is mostly told through the eyes of Trelawney. He's a, he's a young guy that's kind of a screw-up, but he's really trying to make it in America. And while the book touches on the big, heady topic, Topics like class and race and American imperialism, it's all focused on these characters who are so richly developed, you can't help but feel it when they make bad decisions. Hi, I'm Lauren Migaki, senior producer here at NPR, and I am recommending the book Thank You for Listening by Julia Whalen. Full disclosure, if Julia Whalen read the dictionary aloud, I'd listen. The audiobook narrator is such a frequent companion on my walks, I sometimes forget I don't actually know her. Waylon takes on the role of author for this romance about, what else? Two audiobook narrators who fall in love. Meet Swanee Chester, whose acting career was cut short by a tragic accident. When she gets a lucrative offer to narrate a romance novel alongside the sultry-voiced Brock McKnight, things heat up on and off mic. But if the real-life romance is going to work, Swanee has to decide whether to cling to her old dreams or make room for new ones. It probably goes without saying, but listen to the audiobook version of this one if you can. You heard about four books released this year. Thank you for listening, If I Survive You, The Confessions of Matthew Strong, and Less is Lost. For even more reading suggestions, check out our Books We Love list at npr.org bestbooks.
Jerusalem is a great city to wander in during Hanukkah. Tonight is the last night of the holiday. The other night I watched people light menorahs outside their homes with actual oil and wicks, like the olden days. I was walking around with an Israeli hip-hop artist, Shanan Street. This keyboardist is funky, actually. As we get closer, it turns out he knows the guy on the piano. He's a fellow musician, a religious Jew. Shanan Street is not a religious Jew by any means. He doesn't believe in God. But he feels at home with a lot of different crowds in the holy city. I can get you a beer in, in any part of Jerusalem. Muslim, ultra-Orthodox, whatever. I know where the bad boys hang. <laughs> so many songs and prayers have been written about this city, but his band Hadag Nachash has a painful love song out this month that I can't get out of my head, called City of God. In the biblical land of milk and honey, he sings about milk and blood and honey. So here we don't cry of spilled milk or blood or honey. Everything has been spilled here too much already. He takes me through the neighborhood he used to live in. He still remembers hearing the booms, followed by the eerie silence of death. Palestinian bombings in the city 20 years ago. And he brings up a recent tragedy in the city. I'm thinking of the funeral of Shirin Abu Akle, her death and her funeral. The Palestinian-American journalist who was killed earlier this year by Israeli troops. Her death and her funeral are things that neither of them would happen to a Jew in this city. Not the way she died and not the way she was buried. The police interfered in her funeral procession and attacked the, the pallbearers of the casket. Yeah, like, uh, it raised some very, very difficult questions about equality in the city. But he's also in love with the mix of cultures in Jerusalem, where you can hear people listening to Bach, to Karl Bach, the American singing rabbi, Fairuz, the Arab singer from Lebanon, or the blues. There's another great line in the song. He calls the city's mosaic of people one big fermented brew of apple cider. A cider of outsiders. Like hundreds of thousands of... All the little tiny tribes and sub-tribes. and factions and fractions, and they're all uh, fermenting together to create a cider of outsiders. That's Jerusalem for you. We end up at his favorite bar, where he greets old friends. Two Palestinians, a few Israelis, someone from Japan. My name is a cider of outsiders on one night of Hanukkah. The soul of the holiday is our opportunity to better our lives wherever we are. That's the spirit. That's the holiday's greeting. Better your life, wherever you are. Better your life and the lives of the ones close to you. Light that candle. You got eight days, go for it. <laughs> Sha'anan Street of the Israeli hip-hop band Hadag Nachash. Their new single in Hebrew is called 
City of God. And on this eighth night of the holiday, wishing you Happy Hanukkah. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Christmas Day, a popular day to head to the movies. There's a new one out by Damien Chazelle, himself a big champion of showbiz. He's the filmmaker behind Whiplash, centered on a jazz percussionist, and La La Land, which followed the romance between a musician and an actress. His latest is a film biz comedy called Babylon. And as critic Bob Mondello explains, it's about scandal-ridden Hollywood in the Roaring Twenties. We begin in the desert, much as Hollywood did, with a truck driver and client bit that feels like the setup for a Laurel and Hardy movie. Put down one horse in your signature right there. You said one horse? Yeah, it's only one, right? No, it's an elephant. A misunderstanding, clearly. You mean really big horse? No. I mean an elephant. Manny's chaperoning the circus animal to a Hollywood party, and what follows will be Laurel and Hardy-esque slapstick in color with, shall we say, colorful language. Holy Is that a elephant? Cut to Manny's car, towing the now elephant-laden truck up a steep hill. When the tow line snaps, the truck rolls backwards and... Well, I'll spare you the sound of the elephant relieving itself on its trainer, but let it be said that director Damien Chazelle is being honest up front. This is not going to be Tinseltown cleaned up for public consumption. It's the roar of the roaring 20s amplified to full-scale bacchanal, which is, as it happens, the next scene. The Hollywood party in full swing, folks cavorting and snorting and doing things I can't talk about on the radio. Big stars are there, including a Douglas Fairbanks type named Jack Conrad, played by Brad Pitt. This table only has one bottle. We're going to need eight. And also wannabes, including both Manny, played by Diego Calva, and a girl he helps sneak in, Nellie Leroy, played by Margot Robbie. I'm already a star. What have you been in? Nothing yet. Who's your contract with? Don't have one. I think you want to become a star. Honey, you don't become a star. You either are one or you ain't. I am. Do you know where I can find some drugs? By evening's end, they'll both be promised entry to a movie set for the first time, and it's a doozy back in the desert, maybe a dozen silent films shooting at once. Nellie gets to shine in an idiotic western as a barroom floozy. Manny attaches himself to the director of Jack's film, a medieval battlefield epic that's shooting with real swords, lots of injuries, and a full orchestra blaring away for atmospherics. Observing it all from a nearby hilltop, a Hedda Hopper-style reporter played by Gene Smart. Soldiers swore! the fields like flecks of paint from a madman's brush as your humble servant bears witness to the latest of the moving pictures magic tricks oh why do i bother look at these idiots i knew proust you know Writer-director Chazelle is every bit as smitten as his star-struck newbies. He includes film lore for aficionados, shout-outs to Fatty Arbuckle, to the women directors who were pioneers in what later became a nearly all-male world behind the camera. Cut! Okay, eyes water for two, and then the third... And with the coming of talkies, everything shifts up a notch. This was the moment when Hollywood debauchery prompted talk of a production code, and Chazelle serves up nudity, profanity, murder, rattlesnake wrestling, mountains of cocaine, and a probing look at 
at the effect of film industry racism towards even black stars like the trumpeter played by Jovan Adepo. Next to them, Sydney looks white. Well, he's black. They won't think that in the South. Babylon feels over the top and enormous at three plus hours, reportedly down from a four hour first cut. It is a crazily overstuffed love letter to the glories of cinema, as characters keep telling us. It is too much and often, especially in call outs to Singing in the Rain, a little on the nose. It is also clearly heartfelt, and that counts. I'm Bob Mandela. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 1039 and ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday, the actor Vicki Krebs discusses her new film, Corsage, about Austria's Empress Elizabeth. Join Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering Monday, January 30th at WBUR City Space for a conversation and food tasting with celebrity chef Tiffany Faison. For tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. It is 19 degrees in Boston on this Christmas morning. Sunshine today, highs in the upper 20s. Low about 19 degrees overnight, and then tomorrow increasing clouds with highs reaching the low 30s. This is WBUR. The holidays are the time for those recipes, you know, the tried and true ones passed down through generations. And they can be intimidating. It probably sounds complicated, but it isn't that bad. And it's something that you feel proud of once you've finished. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. We'll walk you through two classic recipes from our very own team on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Good News Garage, accepting tax-deductible car donations and providing them to neighbors in need since 1996. Goodnewsgarage.org. I'm Christopher Leiden. Next time on Open Source, music beyond myth. There's a pop legend of Mozart, the child prodigy turned suffering rebel, but it's nothing compared to the true story that biographer Jan Swafford has revealed. And the pianist Robert Levin lets you hear a sociable, happy man who lived and died for the joy of composing. More than a genius, next on Open Source. Today at 2, only on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Union of Concerned Scientists, championing science for a healthy planet and safer, more just world. Learn more at ucsusa.org. And from StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. And here's a gift that may be a little difficult to unwrap. It's the puzzle. Joining us today is puzzle editor of the New York Times and Weekend Edition's puzzle master, Will Shorts. Merry Christmas, Will. Merry Christmas, Daniel. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here with you. Will, please remind us of last week's challenge. Yes, it came from listener Chip Natarajan of Philadelphia. I said if you change the third letter of wolf to an O, you get the sound made by a dog, woof. 
And the puzzle was name a six-letter animal and change the second letter to get the sound made by a completely different animal. What is it? And my intended answer was rabbit. Change the A to an I, you get ribbit, which is the sound of a frog. If you go obscure, you can do cockle, which is a kind of marine mollusk. And change the O to an A, you get cackle, which is the sound of a goose. Whoa. Okay, well, uh, I am proud to tell you that I guessed correctly rabbit ribbit. Uh, so did my dad. Very excited to tell you that. So did more than 2,000 listeners, and our lucky winner this week is Philip Spiro of Durham, North Carolina. Congrats. Welcome to the program. Thank you, and Merry Christmas to the both of you, and Happy Hanukkah. Well, thank you. How long have you been playing the puzzle? Uh, <laughs> at least since the postcard days. I don't want to say how old I am, but I'm old enough to remember the postcard days. Wow, that's impressive. Okay, Philip, are you ready to play the puzzle? As everybody says, I'm as ready as I'm ever going to be. My kids have been texting me saying, don't embarrass us. So I feel strangely compelled to embarrass them. So if I do a face plant, <laughs> it's on purpose. <laughs> okay, let's, let's hear it. Take it away, Will. All right, Philip and Daniel, uh, the theme of today's puzzle is furs. Every answer is a familiar two-word phrase in which the first word starts with F-I and the second word starts with R. For example, if I said of the highest quality, you would say first rate. Here's number one. It might have a line with a worm on the end of it. Fishing rod. That's it. Number two, a place to shoot rifles. Firing range. Uh-huh. Where to try on clothes in a store. Uh, where to try on clothes. A, a, finish, a finishing room. A fitting room. Fitting room. You got it. G, PG, or R, for example. Film rating. That's it. Someone who may write for Bloomberg or the Wall Street Journal. Financial reporter. You got it. A nuclear facility where atoms are split to release energy. Um, the, the, uh, for fuel, not fuel rod, um, uh, Fission room. I don't know. I give up on that one. Uh, fission is right. Fission is right. And uh, Fission reactor. Reactor. There you go. A fission reactor. Like fabric that has been treated to be non-flammable. Fire retardant. Uh-huh. Or resistant. Either way. Prepackaged food for soldiers on the line. Uh, blah, blah. <laughs> Fine restaurant. Um, say, uh, say it again. Prepackaged food for soldiers on the line. What 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 do soldiers eat starting with R? Rations. Um, that, yeah. What kind of rations? I'm blanking. Do you know this, Daniel? Rescue rescue me, Daniel. I I can't rescue you. Rations. I'm thinking mess hall. It, it, it's a uh, field rations. You know field rations. Oh. Oh, field rations. Well, I never would have gotten that. Okay. Try this. Interest amount that doesn't vary. Fixed fixed rate. That's it. Here's a tough one. The French government, starting with Charles de Gaulle in 1958. <laughs> um, um, uh, I need a hint. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you happen to know this, Daniel? Republic? Uh, yeah, and it's not the first republic. It's four after that. It's the Fifth Republic. It's the Fifth Republic, is right. Here's a really tough one. A hit 1947 Broadway musical with the song How Are Things in Glockamora. Eh. 
Okay, honestly, I wouldn't have gotten that one either. That one is a Finian's rainbow. Here is your last one. Disgustingly wealthy in slang. Filthy rich. Filthy rich is it. Good job. And on a good note. Ah, wow. Philip, very impressive. Will, those are tough ones. <laughs> How do you feel, Philip? Uh, like everybody says, relieved. But this is one item I can check off my bucket list. Bingo. Well, for playing our puzzle today, you will get a weekend edition lapel pin, as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Philip, what member station do you listen to? We are sustaining members of WUNC in Chapel Hill. That's Philip Spiro of Durham, North Carolina. Thank you for playing the puzzle. Thank you for doing this. This is good. Thank you. All right, Will. What's next week's challenge? Yes, name a prominent geographical location in the United States, change the fifth letter to an S, and the resulting string of letters from left to right will name a game, a mountain, and a popular website. What place is it? So again, a prominent location in the U.S., change the fifth letter to an S, and the resulting string of letters will name a game, a mountain, and a popular website. What place is it? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, December 29th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. And if you are the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of The New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thanks, Will. Thanks a lot, Daniel. Something unusual is happening during oral arguments at the Supreme Court. For decades, the court operated under strict time limits. During the pandemic, justices heard arguments over the phone, with each justice allotted several minutes solo in order to avoid stepping on each other. And when they returned to the bench in 2021, they could now see each other, of course, but instead of returning to the old discipline, they started to speak longer. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, how that change in tradition is affecting how the court interprets laws. Listen live at this station's website or at npr.org. You don't have to be a fan of period dramas to be drawn into a new film in theaters now called Corsage. It's about the Empress of Austria in the late 1870s. She wears a crown of fiery red braids. She's known for her beauty. But as she approaches her 40th birthday, she wants to rebel. Vicky Kreeps plays Empress Elizabeth in the film, and she joins us now from Berlin, Germany. Thanks for being with us. Hello. You know, Vicky, I, um, I looked up a black and white photo of the real-life Empress Elizabeth of Austria from the mid-1800s, yeah. and it's amazing you look just like her. What drew you to her character? Well, I think it's many things, but um, it goes back to being a teenager in Luxembourg, where I lived quite freely with my parents, and especially my mother, who taught me to be a free girl and, you know, not to live up to the prince's image. But then maybe because I had this different backdrop when I discovered there were these films from the 50s about Empress Elizabeth. And in Europe, every Christmas you watch the films. It's like a tradition. And I knew the films, but 
you know, I was always kind of suspicious, I think, of the prince's image, but I loved the dresses like every other girl. And then at 15, I read her biography. It just left me puzzled, really. It left me with a feeling of unsatisfaction and, you know, not knowing who she really was and sensing some sort of darkness, really, behind the veil. You know, she's not a very familiar historical figure in the U.S., I guess, as much mm. as, as she is in Europe. Um, what was this empress's role? Was she just the wife of the emperor? Did she have power of her own? I mean, I think that is really what she suffered from. She was really married into this very powerful, very restrictive. They were famous at the time, um, the, the Habsburg family, you know, the, the, the royal family from Austria, especially the man she married was the son of a woman who was super traditional, who became her, almost like her controller. She would always wait for her at 5 p.m. with a big book in her hand where she wrote down every mistake she made in a day, you know. So coming from a rather rural castle in the countryside. But then she came to this uh, very, very royal house and had to be the perfect puppet. She really had to sit and be beautiful and shut up. Wow, it's amazing you call her a puppet. And, you know, early on in the film, you are swept up into this world of the 1800s. You see the Empress at uh, the center of attention at a ceremony. Um, mm. And suddenly she faints. Soon we learn that actually she was faking that. But you see your character climbing the stairs and the main theme song comes in by a French songwriter, Camille. She died inside my arms I realized she was a cat oh. It's this very contemporary, brooding song, and I think your character looks right into the camera, doesn't she? Yeah, that's something that Marie wanted to um, establish right away. Is yeah, that's Marie Kreutzer, the director of Corsage. Mm -hmm. The audience should know that this is going to go a different way and that she's going to take over her own story. You know, this is a character that you see almost leave the fourth wall between the audience and the film. It's almost as if she's climbing out of the screen. She's saying, you know, I'm leaving my role even as the character, you know. And it's also saying, what if the person you all look at looks back? I mean, you all agree that I'm famous and now you're watching me and you're talking about me and you're judging me and you're saying that I gained weight and that I lost weight and that I'm difficult and all these things. I think the character in the film is trying to escape this and trying to wake people up in their very conventional ways of seeing things. Talk about the, the title of the film, Corsage. I mean, in the U.S., a corsage mm. is, is a the flower you wear on your wrist at prom, but what does corsage mean in this context? I think the whole movie is to talk about the corset this woman was wearing physically in, in, as a part of her costume or her dress, but also the corset they were making her wear as the empress, which are 
the rules and the everything she was expected to do. Yes, she was expected to do. And this again we use and that is why we have the modern music and everything is to talk about modern women and how we still wear this corset, even if we don't realize, you know, unconsciously mm -hmm. we are still a slave to this idea of having to please. And we see you being laced up in a corset in the film over and over. It's this impossibly tight dress. Yeah. What did it feel like to wear a corset in the film? You wouldn't wear it for one minute. <laughs> I guarantee you. It's just so utterly painful. I, I mean, I would never do it again. And I really, really think it was a mistake. I mean, what is a mistake, really? What You do it and you do what you do. I wanted to do a good job. I wanted to be a good actress. I said, well, she was wearing it. But of course, we didn't think of how many hours I would wear it. You know, I, if you make a movie, you you work for 12, 14 hours and you never sit down. Oh, my gosh. So you wore it for, for yeah. days and days on end? Yeah, because I couldn't get out of it. If I would get out of it, I couldn't get back in. You know, and this feels this feels really painful on a on the level of the soul because you feel even my bones aren't right. You know, my bones are in the way. I am in the way of the idea of the fashion or of the idea the shape I'm supposed to have. Wow. I want to ask you about you know, there's a, a Netflix series now about the Empress uh, called yeah. The Empress. You mentioned the film that uh, people have grown up watching about the Empress. What keeps pulling people to tell her story on film? I don't know. I think all these films are out now is a coincidence because I had this hmm. idea in 2015 and when we first pitched it, people were like, you're crazy. This is, no one is interested in an empress. So I guess it's whatever you call it, coincidence or zeitgeist. Um, I think why we are drawn to these people is because they're also these perfect image of a, of a woman and like statuettes, like portraits. We can imagine them more perfect. And I think that is why we made our movie to say, they are not more perfect. They're the opposite. They're maybe even less perfect. They're just human. Vicky Creeps stars in the new movie Corsage. Vicky, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. Aisha Roscoe will be back in a couple of weeks. Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah from the Holy Land. I'm Daniel Estrin. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One, offering Capital One Shopping, a downloadable browser extension that searches various sites for shoppers. What's in your wallet? More at CapitalOneShopping.com. From Data IQ, 
a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. During the holiday stretch, the news is here, along with the stories, conversation, insights, and reflections as we wrap up 2022. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It is 19 degrees on this Christmas morning. Sunshine today. Highs in the upper 20s. Tonight, the low will drop to about 19 degrees. Then tomorrow, increasing clouds. Monday's highs in the low 30s. Tuesday should be sunny with highs in the mid-30s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service. Proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. The holidays are the time for those recipes, you know, the tried and true ones passed down through generations. And they can be intimidating. It probably sounds complicated, but it isn't that bad. And it's something that you feel proud of once you've finished. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. We'll walk you through two classic recipes from our very own team on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.